Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. And we're very excited to have Dr. Stephen Hargarten here today. Um, Dr. Hargarten has been called one of the nation's leading gun violence experts. He's an American emergency physician, gun violence researcher, and professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. At the Medical College, he's the former chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine, the founding dean for the Global Health Program, and the founding director of the Comprehensive Injury Center. Dr. Hargarten was elected to both the National Academy of Medicine and the Johns Hopkins Society of Scholars. He's the author of over 180 publications. So thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Hargarten. It's, it's fabulous to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, really an honor to be part of this conversation. So we discussed our podcast at the ASBH uh, 2022 conference, and we asked people what kind of topics they wanted to discuss. And violence was, was the number one topic. So we've been really wanting to talk about gun violence for a long time. And I then heard a recording of the WSU Bioethics Brand Rand recording you gave. Uh, gun violence in America, the disease of modern US society. And we knew you'd, you'd be a great guest for the podcast. So I just want to cover a few statistics and numbers before we get going with our questions. The stats around gun violence are alarming and seem to be worsening. Since 1966 to the present day, the Violence Project, which documents mass shootings, has documented 193 mass shootings in the US. And in a 2023, so far, we've had eight mass shootings. That's shootings involving more than three victims, three or more victims. And we've you know, also seen some recent uh, historical and ho- horrific mass shootings, such as Sandy Hook, Uvalde, Las Vegas, Buffalo, Poznica. We, you know, we could go on and on. But there are also tens of thousands of other firearm injuries that don't make the headlines um, and many, many deaths that we, we never read about. In 2023, so far, we've had a 35,000 people who have died from gun violence. And in 2022, 45,000 people died from gun violence. Um, furthermore, in 2022, over 200,000 people sustained non-fatal injuries and 40% required in hospital patient care. Bullets are now the leading cause of death among those ages 1 to 19. So children and adolescents are more likely to die from a bullet than an accident, cancer, genetic disease, or congenital abnormality. And this really just seems incredible. Uh, Bullets are also the leading cause of death among African-American males aged 15 to 24, another very sobering fact. Bullets are a major cause of disability from spinal cord injuries. And despite all these terrifying and tragic statistics and numbers, gun violence is a very neglected topic in medicine and bioethics. And that's why we've invited Dr. Hargarten here today. So tell us about your work and what led you to get involved with research into gun violence. 
Thank you. Um, it really started um, back in the 1980s when I began to be interested in the broad subject matter of injury prevention and control in my first series of investigations and publications and interests was to reduce car crash deaths, uh, advocating for seatbelt laws, uh, looking at patterns of injury in car crashes, and so forth. And then when I joined the faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin in 1989, I was now part of a trauma center, and a level one trauma center sees the most seriously injured car crashes and gunshot wounds. And in the early 90s, the United States experienced a significant epidemic in gunshots and gunshot injuries and deaths. And that began my interest in further investigating this disease, if you will, this disease of modern society that comes to emergency departments across the United States and also globally. And so we began to investigate this uh, cause of death and injury, non-fatal injury, using sciences of public health, uh, epidemiology. We look at the care of those patients and optimize the care, eventually through a very broad biopsychosocial approach that has been advocated really since the 70s. And so that really has been part of my, uh, the fabric of my interest uh, since the uh, early 90s is really focusing on this uh, a tragedy that now, as you stated in the beginning, is a leading cause of death of our children and adolescents. And I think that's such an ex extraordinary um, moment uh, when we've had so much progress with reducing car crash deaths among children and adolescents. And so now, with that steady progress that we've made, still work to do uh, to address pedestrian injuries and bicycle injuries, for instance, we've got a lot of work to do now to address uh, gun violence in vulnerable populations, youth, African-American males, and, and beyond that, uh, uh, depressed um, uh, uh, older white males. So suicides and homicides are part of this complex problem. You use the word disease very intentionally when you're discussing this. So can you tell us why that's helpful and how you classify, um, you know, gun violence as, as a disease? Sure, thank you. It's really um, something that I have been thinking about and many of us have been thinking about this is framing this problem in the context of a disease. Um, physicians, healthcare systems, public health battle diseases. And the definition of disease really began to take uh, shape in the late 1870s, 1880s by a scientist like Robert Koch, who has the Koch's postulates, which uh, define, an, uh, define a disease as it has a cause, anthrax, a bacteria, or later on a virus. That causes the disease. So that is an important element in defining what a disease is. Then there's um, uh, understood to be a, uh, um, a mechanism of injury. How does that uh, agent of disease, a bacteria, cause injury to cells, resulting in morphological changes in tissue, in organ systems that result in a clinical manifestation, fever, chills, uh, rashes, in the case of a myriad of infectious diseases. And that uh, definition can be applied to physical agents of disease. And in this case, kinetic energy. One of the major causes of injury, death, and disability is kinetic energy from a car crash, from a fall from height, or in this case, 
a bullet being released from a handgun or rifle uh, having speeds of an estimated 1,200 to 3,000 feet per second, and the physical agent is kinetic energy, which is one-half mass, the mass of the bullet, times velocity squared. How fast is this bullet going? And thus, when it strikes the individual, it results in morphological changes, tissue damage, resulting in uh, fractures, organ disruption, shock, and death. Hence, that application is very, very consistent with the definition. And what it does is it allows us to investigate it like we do other diseases. And it's so important that we recognize this. So we are pulling in the bioethics community who has been so helpful in um, addressing complexities in um, uh, diseases. And this is one area that I think deserves more and more uh, investigation by the bioethics community that look at this as a disease. And the way we additionally frame it, it is a biopsychosocial disease. Biologically, the bullet tears tissue, disrupts organs, resulting in shock and death. There is psychobehavioral uh, areas that are injured. The individual is at risk of post-traumatic stress. They're angry. They're depressed. Uh, a lot of behavioral issues need to be addressed very quickly with these patients. And social care. There's a disruption of their job, their home, uh, their family disruption. And so having that comprehensive approach, that disease-modeled approach, helps us identify areas of research, areas of intervention that I think deserves more and more attention. In our, um, in our facility at Freighter Hospital, the trauma surgeon is seeing the patient who's biologically injured alongside a clinical psychologist who's investigating the behavioral injury, along with a social worker who's starting the process of social care. And it's prioritized in that order. And I think that's really what we find to be extremely important to better treat our patients and their families uh, as we also work towards identifying ways that we can prevent individuals from being injured from bullets. All right, thank you. Um, so very holistic approach. And um, unfortunately, people politicize this particular topic, but when you look at it in a healthcare lens, it makes sense for us to do something to alleviate and prevent, to the best of our ability, harm, death, tragedy, all of the physical, but also psychological and social dynamics you just mentioned. Uh, so the BPS approach, and of course, um, you could also explain that, what that approach is to our audience here, is helpful in for supporting patients in the healing and also helping us consider other policies more broadly. So just to pick your brain a little bit here, uh, what are other efforts can healthcare institutions and communities take when considering gun violence as a public health disease and supporting a patient who is healing from a gunshot injury or maybe a mental injury trauma based off of that experience um, when they leave the hospital? Sure, it's a great question. And first of all, I want to address when you mentioned political issues. Uh, in my view, uh, gun violence is a political disease. There's no mm -hmm. different in that sense from the politicalization of HIV AIDS that took place in the 1980s and, and, and afterwards. So there, there is inherent policies and political decisions being made that uh, 
address high risk uh, uh, populations or have policies that we need to look at carefully about reducing risk, reducing access to lethal means and so forth. So I think it's really important that people understand that this is a political environment in which we live with this disease process. And there are policies and political decisions that are part of the solution to prevent and control this disease. Regarding what else uh, we can do with that framework, uh, in our system and other systems beginning to do this, we do this comprehensive approach, as I briefly mentioned, a surgeon, psychologist, social care. And that goes to follow-up. The preliminary information that we're seeing with this approach is that patients see that they're being listened to for those other issues, that the social care is meaningful, and they are seeing in follow-up in the clinic that we have with that team addressing their needs and their family needs. And I think that's so important to uh, assure that the family's uh, 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 emotional uh, uh, status the social care issues are addressed in a comprehensive way. And I think healthcare systems are beginning to be more and more actively engaged. Kaiser Permanente is a good example of one system that's been leading this area for several years now. Northwell Health Systems in New York and their intentional efforts to pull in healthcare systems is resulting in screening uh, processes for uh, firearms in the home to assure that they're secured. Uh, we want to make sure that those screening processes work and change behaviors, but also to assure that the patients who are injured are being comprehensively treated in a thoughtful way and a way that maximizes their biological outcome, their fractures heal, there's minimized uh, uh, disabilities, but also their uh, behavioral uh, care, addressing uh, post-traumatic stress, blunting the formation of that and thus having good outcomes that result in their return to the community in a good, positive way. And I think that's really where we're at now with that comprehensive approach. Awesome, awesome. And I think that with that particular approach, it really helps alleviate the many obstacles in our society, uniquely an American problem, right? There are no other uh, nations or countries in the world that has the amount of gun violence that we have. And even the littlest type of approach, I think, what you just mentioned, really helps alleviate a huge issue. But there is a lot more work, as you very well know, that needs to be done. And what do you think, or what do you recommend, rather, uh, what can we do to address firearm violence more generally? And we meaning, in your particular context, um, health systems or uh, public health approaches? Sure. First of all, I want to respond to your uh, comment that the United States is uh, distinctive in its um, level of gun violence. I'm afraid to, to say that we're not. Uh, actually, Brazil has more firearm-related deaths uh, in their country than in the United States. Unfortunately, and it is a major cause of death for children in that country, and it has been for years, mainly homicide. In this case, with suicides and homicides being part of the challenging issues for the United States, it's a little different, but it's a global problem, uh, unfortunately, with the United States and Brazil and Mexico and other countries 
uh, accounting for over half of the deaths of the world. So I wanted to have that uh, for your audience that that we've got a lot to learn from uh, other countries who may be doing better at this than we are. And I think that's an important element for us to recognize. I think, again, generally speaking, by having this uh, conversation and having conversations among groups that have a common goal, fewer deaths, fewer injuries, fewer suicides, fewer homicides, I think brings us together to start a conversation and continue a conversation that's constructive and thoughtful and intentional towards preventing these events from occurring. And I think we have some progress being made for extreme risk protection orders that are being adopted in various states that are attempting to assure that individuals who are depressed and who are perhaps not in um, a good mental health state, that family members or police would be removing the, the firearms from the home for a period of time so that that individual can transition into treatment and that treatment then allows them to recover and then they can recover uh, the use of their firearms for their uh, protection or whatever the reason for their ownership is. So there are examples of this happening uh, that really uh, deserve more and more um, investigation. We think that research is starting to come about in a, in a good way with selected states, foundations, and the federal government um, um, applying research dollars to help us understand better the environments that work or not work for uh, 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 violence in communities. What about at-risk youth and their access to firearms? What about the firearms and how, where do they, the distribution of those guns, how are they coming from Indiana to Chicago, from other states to other states? Better understanding this flow of this product in our community, all research areas that really deserve investigation. It came to my attention that NIH spends about $200,000 for every cancer patient. They spend about $650 for firearm patients. We got a lot of work to do to assure that we have proper research allocation for this vexing uh, biopsychosocial disease. And NIH, that's what they do. They investigate diseases and look at the progress that has been made with HIV AIDS since the 1980s significant progress to the point where it's now considered a chronic uh, illness without a death sentence. And I think we need to start to invest invest in this for addressing this complex problem with the anticipation that we'll make progress. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for that insightful response. Um, Because typically you hear that America is the worst and they don't bring other countries into the conversation like Mexico or Brazil that you previously alluded to earlier. And since you are uh, talking about federal funding, I'm really interested on your thoughts on the Dickey Amendment. And maybe that has to do with the gap in federal funding researching gun violence. So what are your thoughts on the consequences, whether good or bad, in regards to the uh, Dickey Amendment? And also, please explain to our audience what the Dickey Amendment is. Sure. So the Dickey Amendment was that just that, a amendment from Congressman Dickey, who um, wanted to assure that funds for injury prevention and control were not being used for advocacy. 
towards certain outcomes. And so the specifics of the Dickey Amendment are that you are not allowed, you were not allowed, to have a study supported by, in this case, the CDC. And from that study, you would go to your state or federal uh, testimony and say, based on my research supported by CDC, I am here to say that I support Senate Bill 85 or whatever. You cannot do that. And when I received CDC funding after the Dickey Amendment, it's important for the audience to know, it didn't preclude me from doing firearm-related research. It precludes me from taking that research and the findings, which I can publish, but publish with the sense that with the um, guideline is that I can't be advocating for a certain position that is being discussed in legislatures. So that's the important element of the Dickey Amendment. But what it did, which was so unfortunate, it dampened CDC's interest in funding because they were so concerned about that clause. And so they really didn't fund much in the way of any research. And that spilled over to NIH for over 20 years. So we lost 20 years of solid, increasing research that could have discovered new ways to help with at-risk youth uh, in vulnerable communities, discover ways in which we can improve or strengthen or change the environment in which these events occur. A lot of research questions could have been answered during those 20 years, and it was so unfortunate. It sent such a dampening effect. And now it's gradually being uh, 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 reinvested with small amounts of uh, funding to the CDC and NIH, And I think that's great, but we need so much more. Foundations have stepped in. States have stepped in, like California, Washington, New Jersey, which are directly funding firearm uh, research, which is great, all coming together, but we need more. The other exciting part of this, in a positive way, is that we recently had the second annual meeting of the Research Society to address firearm-related harms. It was held in Chicago, November 1st to the 3rd, over 600 researchers were in attendance. 20 years ago, there weren't that many at all. So there is a interest with younger investigators that is very encouraging for us to see that we're going to be making some progress in the upcoming years. Are there limitations then on what people can do research on and what other avenues? You did briefly mention this, but what other avenues would you like to see researched? Uh, In a general way, there's really no uh, limits to research, but I think there's hurdles, there's obstacles, there's challenges, uh, for instance, to investigate or do surveys within the correctional system about those individuals who are in uh, prisons to survey them. Where did you you get the gun? How did you get the gun? Uh, Those kinds of questions are very challenging to get answered because of the challenges conducting research in that setting, but it can be and it has been done. I think in my area of interest, we want to study the the bullet and its behavior in human tissue facsimile. We want to look at what bullets do by investigating, and when you started off the mass shootings, we would like to document the kinds of injuries that resulted in death and non-fatal outcomes in some of the mass shootings. One of the reasons is that there's only one kind of bullet being used. And that helps us look at the patterns of injury that 
may have resulted in uh, missed opportunities for prevention. Some of those individuals may have died with preventable injuries. We want to see what those might be uh, to, uh, uh, again, better understand the distribution of these injuries with defined bullets. And I think that's a rich area that we feel uh, is uh, very, very um, encouraging, given that we have technologies now that can better understand this. And I think that's an area that we're very excited about getting back to the disease model. The video camera is our microscope for this disease. We can study the flight of a bullet like never before in this gelatin where the bullet is traveling 3,000 feet per second with a video camera that captures this bullet's flight with 50 to 100,000 frames a second and including the, the energy um, uh, uh, indicators, the energy sensors, we can document what that bullet does as never before, just like we would do with a bacteria where we document how does it harm cells, how virulent is it, that's what we want to do with bullets. Yeah, and I know you've done some great work kind of comparing the kinetic energy that can be released from you know these assault rifles and things compared to, you know, several years ago or when the, the Second Amendment came about. So that's been really interesting to, to learn about. Um, also wanted to ask you about what are the state and federal policies you think would be helpful to try and curb the problem of gun violence? Uh, that's a, it's a very important question. And uh, it's unfortunately, it's very challenging to advance federal policies as opposed to uh, states advancing their state-based policy. So good example of that for, with California, they now have passed a, a law that looks at uh, the firing pin having a, a imprint. So when the firing pin hits the cartridge, which then starts the burning of the, of the uh, gunpowder that releases the bullet, that mark on the casing that is released in a, in a, in a pistol can be used to track down from what gun did it come from, and thus help to adjudicate uh, criminal activity in the case of an assault or homicide. That's a very interesting, very simple technological uh, strategy that is being um, addressed on the state level. There's been no discussion on the federal level, but it would be wonderful to see that happen. There's also a tax on ammunition uh, that has been recently passed in California. What does that mean in terms of, of that policy addressing uh, gun violence in a way that perhaps we can get some traction about individuals buying large quantities of, of bullets. The Uvalde uh, perpetrator uh, allegedly came into the uh, store, bought his AR-style 15 rifle, and bought 1,600 rounds of ammunition. And the tax structure of that bullet seems to me would be an important difference than the tax structure of a 22 caliber uh, bullet that's fired by rifles in Boy Scout camps all over the United States. So a differential tax structure would be interesting. Uh, the one in California is a blanket tax, but that deserves, I think, more conversations among states and perhaps on the federal level. And so there's those kinds of things. Permit to purchase is being really looked at in a very positive way and is in place in many states. And we're seeing that in states that have enacted and passed policies that address gun violence, you're seeing lower gun violent rates, gun violent death rates. 
compared to other states that have fewer, if any, policies regarding gun violence. And so the, the activity is mainly in the state level for the moment uh, and very little ability to be able to pass anything on the federal level. Well, it's encouraging to see some of these things happening. Also wanted to ask you about the newly established Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Um, so I know this only really happened very recently, but can you tell us about that and what you hope it might achieve? It's a great uh, development, a great question. And I, uh, at this point, have very little to say about about its uh, um, activities to date. Uh, I think it's encouraging that there is a central place that's coordinating uh, efforts across states. I think that that's very, very important. Uh, the National Institute of Justice is investing a lot in community violence prevention. How is that being coordinated? Are, are they identifying best practices? And that office can help to align, to convene uh, thought leaders to assure that we're on the right track uh, with uh, interventions. And so I think it's too early to say for sure what's going to be happening, but it's certainly encouraging that it's reached a point, as it should, that the federal government is taking this seriously and seriously because of the fact that it's adversely impacting vulnerable populations. The concern I have is with that, with an office like this, that it's subject to the vagaries of administrative leadership. In the case of car crashes, in the case of motor vehicle crash safety, we have the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It's um, legally required by law, passed by the legislature, the Congress. So it it weathers administrative changes from uh, administrations from uh, every four years, but it's still there. It may change with its funding streams, but it's still there. And it has a research budget. The Office of Violence Prevention doesn't have a research budget. Can it advocate for one for other agencies like NIH? Of course. So a lot of things can happen, should happen, um, but I'm cautiously optimistic about how effective it's going to be. Wonderful news, great leadership, and great opportunities now to, to further align efforts that may start to pay uh, dividends. And I know you've written recently about educating medical students about gun violence and sort of made the point that, you know, medical schools were able to pivot um, towards education by HIV and COVID. Um, but gun violence is really not something they've sort of adopted widely as part of their curriculum. So can you speak to this a little bit? What role do you think medical schools should be playing in this uh, problem? Sure. That's a great, uh, important uh, question. And I uh, firmly believe that they can and should be playing a key role to assure that the physicians leaving medical schools are positioned to further understand this uh, complex problem as they enter into their residencies. Virtually every specialty is impacted by gun violence, whether from an acute injury to the kidney, with a urologist, to the general uh, um, uh, uh, concerns of a general internist family practitioner. So I think that medical schools can and should be doing this, given the, its scale now here in the United States. It's interesting is that the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is the arm of medical schools and teaching hospitals, that's their organization, 
they released a uh, document in 1988 calling for curriculum changes to address HIV and AIDS. That's less than 10 years after the first cases were being discovered in the early 80s. We've had a pandemic, if you will, of gun violence since the 90s, with tens of thousands of people uh, being injured and, and, and killed. And yet we don't have that fully integrated into the fabric of a medical school where we look at the basic sciences of this disease, ballistics that I've been mentioning, to the psychosocial elements of this and really begin to bring this model more fully into education that really is uh, applicable to other uh, diseases that get a lot of attention and appropriately so uh, for medical school curriculum. The biopsychosocial care of a cancer patient is complex, just like it is for a gunshot uh, uh, patient. So I think it's really important. I think the timing is good, is that um, we really think that this is going to start to get more and more attention. The National Academy of Medicine, as you mentioned, I'm a member, has now an interest group. It had not had this interest group before. They have a task force to address gun violence. I think one of the areas that, again, to be recommended would be uh, for uh, curriculum to be advanced, not only in medical schools, public health schools, nursing schools, criminology, social work. I just was at a meeting uh, with uh, social workers and two, three uh, colleges of social work in their um, interest in addressing gun violence. And I think that's where, again, their curriculum is going to change and more fully uh, identify ways in which they can educate their future leaders in social work to address gun violence. So a lot of things are, are happening now as never before in my experience over the past several decades that is very encouraging. Yes, uh, definitely encouraging indeed. And I'm curious, just not to backtrack a little bit, but what is your thoughts on red and yellow flag laws? So first, if you could just explain what a red flag law is and what a yellow flag law is to our audience. And your critique, if it's, are these laws helpful? in some instances, or they need to be updated. And the reason why I'm asking, because a more recent shooting in Maine, which made national headlines, is that there were a lot of critiques regarding their yellow flag law because there were so many obstacles. Clearly, this man was mentally ill, had uh, mental obstacles that hindered his rational thinking, and because of the many obstacles of the yellow flag law in Maine, it was too late to at least arguably prevent this incident from happening. So what are your thoughts on that? So complex uh, question and one that deserves an uh, advanced answer that perhaps could be served by having another guest who has these kinds of uh, initiatives more fully uh, understood. I'm not, haven't been actively engaged in these, but what I do know is that the early, the early uh, research about the effects, the positive effects of the red, the red flag laws, which I'm more familiar with as opposed to the yellow one that you've referred to, that the early evidence is suggesting that it does have some uh, impact. It does allow that individual to seek therapy and that their lethal means, the handgun or rifle, is removed from um, uh, their environment, their home, 
so that when they come back and they have really uh, um, demonstrated that they are, you know, they're really back in a healthy state, if you will, that the handgun is, is returned uh, to their possession. These are complex uh, items that deserve a lot of alignment with uh, the police, with families, with the courts to assure proper due process of this uh, pro- of this uh, strategy to reduce the likelihood of someone um, acting uh, acting out, if you will, in a in a lethal way, like we saw with uh, the shooter in Maine or in other co- parts of the country. So it's a it deserves more and more investigation. These are complex studies. Back to my comments about resources, so that it's adequately uh, addressed in a way that um, it makes it a little bit of an expensive way to to understand how these laws effectively uh, can be effective in communities. So these are this is an emerging area that um, it, we're going to hear more and more about this. Uh, but I think at this stage, I really am not a good person to be talking extensively about this, except that it's an encouraging area. No, no, thank you. Um, and my next question, to your extent of knowledge, of course, how has, not to name a particular group, but how has lobbying impacted uh, the prevention of gun violence in your in your opinion? Lobbying meaning uh, lobbying our elected officials, Congress, uh, elected officials overall. Um, interesting question. Um... And uh, I think that there are emerging a significant amount of groups that are actively engaged in advocacy, in lobbying, uh, that were not present 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So you've got major organizations, one of which is Brady, which has been around for many, many years. You've got every town, you've got uh, Giffords, you've got state chapters or moms demand action. A lot of activities are are present and continuing to grow as never before. And a lot of state-based um, lobbying um, ag- advocacy groups. So there's not a real, sh- um, as opposed to what it was years ago, there's really uh, a, quite a lot of lobbying efforts to address gun violence. And the singular uh, presence of the NRA has been there for many decades, and uh, they're still um, uh, lobbying as well. And then the National Shooting Sports Foundation is increasingly lobbying, which is the Association for the Manufacturers. So there's a lot of complexity with that. Again, no different than for car crashes. You've got lobbying efforts on many sides uh, for this to address uh, car crash safety. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more of this with um, uh, 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 groups coming uh, to the forefront and asking public officials, what's your stance on X, Y, or Z? Uh, when I really end a lot of my uh, presentations to younger populations especially, and when I mention this is a political disease, one of the major ways in which you can affect this is vote. It's a political disease. It has political connotations, political outcomes, that need to be thoughtfully science-driven discussions so that we can develop those policies and programs that are evidence-based and can be evaluated rigorously to see if they work or not. I think that's so important for us to recognize this while 
groups are lobbying for more research funding. Terrific. And I think that would be another example of aligning those efforts to um, to get that uh, more those resources more and more to NIH, CDC, and other places. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because we have an election year coming up. So what we're talking about, obviously, is going to be on the campaign trail um, from many different perspectives, of course, pro-gun and anti-gun and everything in between, right? Uh, but still, the issue of violence still persists. So we have to be creative in trying to alleviate this issue. So I refer, I prefer to not present it with a dichotomy of anti or pro, but rather pro-safety, pro-community safety, pro-injury uh, prevention and control. And what are some of those strategies that have a spectrum of, of opportunities for uh, progress being made? And so coming together on common ground is so important. Um, we, we learned with motor vehicle crashes, there was a lot of pro and anti seatbelt, uh, uh, and we've really culturally uh, gone, come a long ways with those early discussions. So a lot of that discussion has to be around common ground of how are we going to make our communities safer for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we argue, nothing's going to get done, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, particularly when it's got a lot of cultural, emotional elements to it. We've got to get through that. And really, again, I can't emphasize enough about the importance of science informing what bullets do, uh, uh, science informing how we can best change behavior of youth, a significantly difficult problem to do, but it can be done. How do we do it? Well, this has been fantastic, and thank you so much for coming. Is there anything else you want to cover or speak about that we didn't discuss so far? I think we covered a lot. I think you did, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, this has been very uh, enjoyable with good questions and a really a, a back-and-forth uh, dialogue that uh, I was very uh, happy and honored to have the chance to be part of this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.